Yeah, we're going to read the passage where God promises to Israel that one day he would call their name and they would run out of that grave like we just sang. So follow along as I read Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and thus I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we're indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's pray to him. Lord, thank you that you are the God of life. You are the God who did this so long ago, and you will do something like it again one day. And as we contemplate your power today, would you speak through your word? To your servants, would you use John to bring your truth to our hearts and change us? Because we're here to hear you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As I said, uh, this morning's a little bit different. What I'm going to do is attempt in the next 15 to 20 minutes to give a very, very quick overview of Ezekiel. And then I've invited my brother, my literal brother from the same mother, um, <laughs> To share a bit of his story, because as we'll get to see this morning, this passage hit my heart and, and our family um, at a pretty critical time. Um, so that's a, a little bit different. But if you're taking notes and you want a title and you're loving the alliteration that we're doing, uh, Kavod, K-A-V-O-D, Covenant and King. Ezekiel the prophet, again, he was one of what I like to call the big dogs, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, because of their length, although, and I'll repeat the joke, they didn't wear the clothing brand. Um, he's in the first wave of exiles that went to Babylon in 595 BC. 
Ezekiel, at the time of writing this, is five years into exile, and it's believed that he's coming up on his 30th birthday, which is significant because he was in the line of priests. And it's um, said that when a priest would turn 30, or somebody in the line of priests would turn 30, they would be officially ordained and enter into the priesthood after basically a whole life of training. But Ezekiel finds himself in exile, meaning he's not going into the priesthood right away. Happy birthday. But he gets this vision of glory in chapter 1 that is striking. And I was talking with Mike earlier, Ezekiel is one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament to understand. It is full of these visions that are borderline psychedelic at times. There's pictures and images, and, and it's really a wild, wild book. And in chapter 1, he gets this vision of God and his glory. What's going on there? Well, Whitney Woolard from the Bible Project helps us understand. She says, Ezekiel is piling up one Old Testament illusion after another to tell you what he sees, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He's seeing the kavod, that's the Hebrew for glory of the Lord. The Hebrew term kavod means heavy. It can be used metaphorically like that's so heavy, meaning weighty or significant. It can be used to describe the physical manifestation of someone's significance. Someone's presence can be so important, so radiant, so significant that we would describe it as their kavod. That's how it is used throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It was God's kavod that rested on the Ark of the Covenant and filled the Holy of Holies. It was God's kavod that showed up on Sinai. And now in Ezekiel, it is his kavod that's riding into Babylon on his royal wheeled throne. Yahweh himself, in all his radiant glory, has just arrived in Babylon through the vision in what she calls the God-mobile. And that vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 is going to sustain him and strengthen him for a lifetime of impossibly difficult ministry. Brief overview, chapter 1 through 11, Ezekiel takes on the um, basic vocation of every single prophet by accusing God's people of their idolatry and warning them of judgment to come. The partial exile that Ezekiel was in the first wave of would become a full exile. And God promises him in this section, great news, Ezekiel, nobody's going to listen to you. So he needs God's glory to sustain him. What a job he had. He sees in chapter 10 the vision where the glory of God has left the temple but God hasn't abandoned in chapter 11. It's promised that he will return and he makes this covenant with his people. In chapters 12 through 24, there's judgment on Israel with parables and the sharpest, most graphic imagery in all of scripture. Uh, parents, if you are reading through the Bible with your kids, just there's like an NC-17 warning with the book of Ezekiel. It's crazy. And, and I was joking again with Mike that I thought it would be really fun to make him feel uncomfortable by reading some of those passages to you, but I'm growing up and maturing just a little bit. I think the thoughts, but don't necessarily do the deeds, okay? Then, chapters 25 through 32, God will use Babylon not only with Israel as an instrument of God's judgment and justice, but with the nations as well. In chapter 33, it's promised that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it seems like the end. There, there's really no worse news that an Israelite could have that their, their hometown, the, the place where God's glory dwelled, the center of their lives and worship would be destroyed. 
But in chapter 34 through 37, there's hope for Israel. God speaks against the false shepherds that have fed themselves and starved the people and promises a new shepherd king who will seek and secure his people with a covenant of peace. As it was promised in Jeremiah, God's people would receive these new hearts. And in the what of God's saving work is reiterated. And really, in chapters 34 through 37, it's stacked. Old Testament scholar Chris Wright, who I had the pleasure of driving in my 2001 Toyota Camry from like Tempe to the North Valley. He's Irish and has a very pleasant accent and a very nice individual. Um, and I was just all, don't kill this guy. He's a world-class theologian, and you're taking him from point A to point B. Don't kill him. Success. Chris Wright says he promises to bring Israel out of anarchy, into the land, back from disgrace, up from the grave, and together out of brokenness. It is, in modern jargon, a truly holistic gospel. Ezekiel was ministering to a people who were broken and battered in every conceivable way. There were political, economic, agricultural, social, uh, judicial, religious, personal, relational, and spiritual dimensions to their sin and suffering. And God intended to tackle every aspect of that need. Such is the breadth and depth of the biblical gospel. So, so that is what God is going to do. How is God going to do it? Well, we see in chapter 37, it is by his spirit. And again, Ezekiel borrows and utilizes all this biblical imagery that is not necessarily new to him. Where we see in Genesis chapter 2 that God creates humanity in his image from dirt and divine breath. Those are the animating forces of God's work. We see that in Genesis 3, sin brings death. But the promise here is God will remake. God will continue to send this breath and remake humanity. Then chapters 38 through 48, there's prophecies for the nations and all of creation that evil will be defeated, there will be a new temple, the glory will return, and in the end, the image of Eden restored is used. And since every story, to quote Sally Lloyd-Jones from the Jesus Storybook Bible, since every story whispers his name, yet again we see that this is ultimately and fully fulfilled in Jesus. That God's glory is on display in the face of Jesus. That's what John chapter 1 says. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. We see in 2 Corinthians 3 that as we behold the face of Jesus Christ in his glory, with an unveiled face, unlike Moses who was veiled when he encountered God's glory, we're able to behold it with an unveiled face. And by seeing Jesus, we then are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So we see God's glory on display in Jesus. We see that Jesus is the true king who has come into creation. But rather than driving out the nations with a sword, he lays down his life as a sacrifice to gather the nations that he is the true shepherd king. And Jesus promises and gifts us with this new covenant of peace, of hope, of love, and salvation that in Christ, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That the old has passed away and the new has come. And that Jesus will still one day ultimately, fully, and finally make all things new. And until then, his work is still gathering and saving and restoring and sending. 
And I say all of that realizing this, that in our lives it can be easy to look at Ezekiel, see the connection to Jesus, and just go, yeah, sure. We know it. And maybe we're reminded of it, and I don't know where you're at today, but often what it seems like the, the difficult thing of life in, in ministry is seeing what happened thousands of years ago, seeing what is going on today, and feeling this infinite chasm between the two. Uh, of the wounds that we carry and the struggles that we face, the worries and fears that we have for ourselves or those around us, there seems to be this gap that is difficult to grasp, believe, and live into the reality of the gospel day by day. And that's why I chose Ezekiel 37 as the reading in the beginning, because that passage met me. It was first through a painting that a friend, Sarah Hands, made back in like 2007 that was just a mountainscape, and it just said, Oh God, you know, referencing Ezekiel chapter 37. It, it met me in one of those difficult seasons of my life, certainly the most difficult season of my life to date in 2008 and 9. I don't know where you were then, but 2008, there was this little thing called basically a, a global economic turndown in recession, right? And in 2008 and 9, I, I somewhat affectionately call it the pressure cooker season of life. The economy collapsed, causing the church that I was a part of and on staff of to go through just a crazy amount of attrition and difficulty. Both grandparents passed away in the fall. I was ordained in October of 2018, which then led in December, uh, because of the economic collapse, to need to go bivocational. So I found myself at Safeway in Chino Valley, Arizona, working for minimum wage, bagging groceries and cleaning the bathroom there. Like a month or two after being ordained, being like, God, your plan's pretty stinky. <laughs> During that time, my brother, who's going to share, is going through an addiction. My wife, Karen, uh, was pregnant and experienced miscarriage, all within a period of about six months. And this passage comes. And it's one of my favorite questions in all of Scripture that God asks Ezekiel is he sees these this valley of dry bones. And behold, it says they're exceedingly dry. They're very dry, meaning it's, it's dead, dead. It's not, you know, fresh carcasses. You're going, this is devastation and desolation. And God asks him this ridiculous question. Can these bones live? I mean, yesterday my son was walking through the woods and came across a deer carcass and he's holding it on a stick like ribs and... <laughs> And I didn't think it until just now. Can those bones live? Are you kidding me? And Ezekiel's answer is telling. First, he names who God is and his character. Oh, Lord God, you know. He's saying, God, the ball is in your court. I know who you are. I know your name. I know your character. I've been following you, been prophesying and speaking to God's people that they don't listen. And he recognizes that he cannot predict what God might do. He cannot predict the work of God. So he's realistic. But he doesn't allow that realism to cloud or conceal the potential and power of God. And so God asks him to do something ridiculous. Speak to these bones. Prophesy. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
Why? You shall know that I am the Lord. And Chris Wright says in his little heading for this uh, section of scripture in his commentary on Ezekiel that it is from rigor mortis to resurrection. He says, speak again. And an army arises and God shows Ezekiel that this is his people. They're destitute. They're in exile. They're cut off. Everything seems lost. And what God promises is that it is his word, it is his work that will bring about resurrection and transformation. And you, through that work, will know. And friends, if you follow Jesus, I'm here to remind you today, this is your story. I don't care if you started following him at 2, 22, or 92. This is the work of salvation. Leslie Newbegin has a quote that's one of my favorites. He says, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I was with a group of pastors a couple weeks ago, and they go, well, are you a half, uh, glass half full or glass half empty? And I'm like, I don't like the question. Is it a wine glass, a pint glass, a shot glass? Like, what type of glass are we talking here? I was like, I think that makes me a pessimist. But, but this quote always comes to mind. It's not about optimism or pessimism. It's the reality of whether or not Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And friends, if you believe and follow Jesus, this is your story. Time can fade that fire. Life can dull those memories. But again, if you are in Christ and you are a new creation, this is a miracle of God. We don't and cannot save ourselves. We cannot and don't bring about life in our own hearts. And so where you're at and for whatever you're facing, for whoever you're concerned about, what are you going to do about that? As you look upon maybe a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, your own situation, and it's seeming completely dry and dead. And God's going... What's going to come from this? <laughs> Such a good answer. Oh, Lord God, you know. And what he calls us to is obedience and following after him regardless. Again, we aren't, we aren't Ezekiel, but the question is often the same. And the answer is helpful. Oh, Lord God, you know. The only thing that will bring about new life is God and his word. The only force in this universe that can restore dead people to life is Jesus. And so that reminder is not to ignore the tragedy that we actually face, the hopelessness that we inevitably will go through, but to press in and speak grace and truth and love where God gives the opportunity. And for us this morning to retrace the hand of God through the cracks of our own lives and human history not necessarily knowing the direction that life's going to take, not necessarily knowing the end or the outcome, but trusting until God makes all things new, he is still at work. And the one thing without fail in my life that cues tears is this passage and its work in my brother Ryan's life. And so I'm going to invite him up. 
try not to cry too much and have him share his story and then I'll, after he's done, come up and close. Uh, my name is Ryan, and I am John's older and shorter brother. <laughs> he never lets me forget that. Um, but I'm here this morning just to uh, kind of continue what John was talking about. In 2008, um, that was for sure the hardest year of my life. Um, but I wanted to tell the story of what kind of led up to where I was at in 2008. Um, Growing up in our family, you know, we, we went to church, we, uh, you know, our parents modeled Christ as best as they could. Um, I felt like I was given all the opportunities to, to follow the Lord, and I was baptized when I was eight. Looking back on it, I truly believe that, uh, you know, Jesus was my Lord and Savior, um, but leading into my youth group years, um, I kind of became a little disenchanted with things. I felt like I was kind of an introverted kid at baseline and, and didn't really feel like I belonged to the, the in crowd. John and my best friend at the time, Colin Martell, who some people here probably know, um, they were really plugged into youth group and I kind of felt a little bit like this outsider. And so it was this process of trying to fit in with the group and also be friends with my brother and Colin. And I was also dating a girl at the time, and neither one of us were really leading each other to Christ. Um, so that was the pattern set forth uh, that led me through junior high into high school. It's kind of a lukewarm Christian at best. Um, moving off to college, I ended up working in the restaurant industry and, um, you know, met a group of people there, felt like I fit in. You know, we, we often would just go to the bar after work and drink and... That was our way of, of socializing, and with this group of people, um, we were down in West Fork of uh, Oak Creek Canyon, if anybody's been there, but I was trying to show off again, prove my moves. I was jumping off this rock over a, a creek and landed super hard, just remember this like electric jolt shooting up my back, and um, after that, I just started having these recurrent back problems. Um, I ended up going to a doctor who started prescribing pain meds for me. Um, up to that point, I hadn't had any experience with that. And what I noticed is when I took the pain meds, I kind of, that edge was just taken off of feeling like I didn't fit in with people. Um, I wasn't so worried about what people thought about me. And for me, that was a powerful motivator to, to just keep, keep using them. And, and so over the next six months, I was prescribed these pain meds. Um, and then eventually, you know, the doctor quit prescribing him. And at this time, this is about 2005, so back then there wasn't quite the rules and regulations, at least in the online arena, because that's where I started getting my pain meds. Um, what was interesting is I was in college, and I got online, and I had been thinking about it, doing some research, and trying to find where I could get these. And I just remember the Lord, it was super vivid, just being like, if you order these, your life's going to go downhill. It was clear as day. But I hit the order button. Um, over the next couple years, I continued using pain meds on a pretty regular basis. I was able to maintain a job, do all the normal things, but this was definitely, uh, you know, some pretty significant change in my life. 
couple years later, uh, I was working in the Forest Service and I met a guy who had an Oxycontin addiction, so my addiction turned worse. Um, I was spending, you know, 200 bucks a day kind of thing to support my addiction. And naturally, through the people you meet by going and procuring drugs, um, ended up getting addicted to heroin. And that was in uh, 2008. And again, I lived with a girlfriend at the time. Uh, my addiction was getting really bad. Uh, it was hard to maintain any sort of job or normalcy. Um, she ended up moving out, and this was in the spring of 2008. Um, after that, I started a job at like a bathroom remodeling company and maintained that job for about four months, but it was like every single paycheck, the priority was going to drugs. And so, um, kind of a little side story, John and Karen actually came up because my mom's got an apartment up in Flagstaff, and uh, I had like broken through the sliding door there, and they were gonna spend the weekend up at this apartment, and they walk in, and I'm like forging checks on a typewriter, which was super awkward. Um, <laughs> but, so, um, needless to say, I lost that job. And um, from there, it was like, you know, I didn't really care about working so much. I, you know, my addiction was like, that's all that occupied my mind from a day-to-day -day basis. So I ended up taking my truck. I went down to Phoenix, <clears throat> and I supported my addiction via panhandling. And, you know, I, I would occasionally go into people's backyards, steal lawnmowers and tools and things, and uh, pawn those off. Um, and that happened uh, the summer of 2008. And obviously, I had runs in with law enforcement. I got arrested. Um, and they let me out of jail the same day. Um, there was actually a really crazy, I had a police officer that was gonna pull me over and I ended up just fleeing. It was like a high-speed police chase through a neighborhood, just sliding sideways. It was like, it was pretty surreal. There was helicopters overhead, jumping the fence. I felt like I was on an episode of Cops. Um, but they ended up finding me, they arrested me, and then they released me that day because apparently they were looking for a different person that looked similar to my vehicle. It was a really crazy situation. But um, early November 2008, I, during this time, in addition to heroin, I had picked up a crack addiction and that, you know, I'd go on these you know, multiple day benders of not really sleeping much. Um, and so early November, I was in my truck, basically like napping on this side street, got woken up by a landscaper who was using a leaf blower. I was like, okay, I need to go to a quieter spot. So I get in my truck, I'm driving down this, this is just a totally normal residential neighborhood. Just pass out at the wheel and just plow right into a light pole. And I, you know, dazed, my windshield's you know, shattered from my forehead, I get out and there's like a lady calling, who knows, you know, EMS or police across the street. So I'm panicking at this point. I see radiator fluid pouring out of my truck. Um, I'm like, okay. So I hop back in, turn it over. It takes about six tries, but um, it was a Toyota, so it started right up. <laughs> um, but I drove like 
the truck would overheat because I didn't have coolant. Um, I drove four times to finally get my last fix at the dealers um, because I knew like my truck was my main source of panhandling and being able to support my addiction. So um, make it to the dealers, find my way to a different gas station. I'm just sleeping in the cab of my truck. A couple guys roll up that were pretty shady characters, but they're like, hey man, your truck looks busted up. Let us help you out. So I'm like, all right. And uh, so they tinker on my truck while I'm like sleeping because I haven't slept for three nights. Um, and after that, they're like, hey, you're gonna owe us you know, 100 bucks. And I'm like, don't have the money. And they're like, well, you better find the money. So I go into the gas station like I'm gonna go to the ATM, but, and these guys kind of follow me. And then I just bolt out the door, jump in my truck, back up real quick. One of the guys like knifes both of my tires, and this is about dusk time, so I'm driving down the road, my truck's like sideways, hood's flapping. It was unbelievable. It was like a scene from a movie. Um, made it about a mile down the road. I'm sitting in a, another gas station uh, parking lot, just like, all right, seems like, you know, this, this is it. The same voice that had convicted me back um, when I had initially ordered those meds was clear as day and it was it was the Lord telling me if you continue on this path it's going to end up in life or prison it was not debatable <clears throat> and so you would think that would be an easy like okay well I guess I'll just straighten up my life but I'd reached a point in my life where it wasn't you know death or all of the fines and the things that I had accumulated up to that point, for me to sober up was like, I'd almost rather die. So I sat there for a minute, ended up sleeping that night. The next morning, um, I made the decision to use a dollar fifty in my pocket, bought a bus pass to a detox center, uh, passed out in the bushes out front just from exhaustion. And I just remember they dragged me in. You know, they were running vital signs. I think I was just dehydrated and stuff, but they ushered me in, got me started on this five-day process of just detox meds and things. I called my dad on day three and just remember the tears for both of us. Uh, you know, he thought I was dead. I hadn't spoken to anybody in my family for probably two and a half months up to that point. And um, it, it just, it was incredible. Um, but. Day five, my brother, my dad, they pick me up. We drive back up here to Prescott. Um, my brother ends up taking me over to this U-Turn uh, for Christ, which is in Payson. It's a Christian detox and alcohol rehab center. Um, I feel bad for my brother. I, I, I don't know why I was obsessed with the Viva La Vida song at the time, but we played it like 25 times on the way over. <laughs> he probably still hates this song to that today. but. Uh, so I get to U-turn, and then, you know, it's, their model is, is not one of kind of the traditional detox of using meds to walk you through this process. It's just straight up manual labor every day with like Bible studies in the morning, Bible studies at night, and uh, it was for sure the hardest physical thing I've ever been through. I mean, just getting through opiate withdrawal is hard enough, but then adding manual labor on it. and. Um, I don't think I slept but 10 hours probably the first couple weeks I was there. Um, 
By about the fourth week, the withdrawals started subsiding. I remember we went to a Bible study and um, we came back to the center and I was like just looking at the stars like, man, Lord, what are you doing here? You know, it was kind of like a, oh, Lord, you know moment for me. And I just felt like God's doing something in my heart and I'm willing to submit to that. And so, you know, it wasn't like I woke up the next day and was just immediately transformed, but it was this slow process of just allowing the Lord to work in my heart. And I graduated U-turn January 11th of 2009. Um, about a month later, I met Kaylee, who's now my wife, and Bill's my father-in-law. I just, I feel bad for him because at the time, it was like he knew my story, and here comes this guy, you know, a month out of rehab dating his daughter. So but he's been a gracious man. I'm very grateful for him. Um, but I say all that. I have so many stories over the last 13 years that God's done a work. Aside from, you know, my wife and three kids. and it, Man, it's just this continual God working. Um, let me try to situate this here. I just wanted to share a few of the things that I've learned over these past years. And the, the first one, and I think this is a common thread that's often talked about, and we know this in our heads, but do we believe it in our hearts, is God hears our prayers. I really believe that the reason I'm here today is because of the prayers of the saints. And I know there's many people in this room that prayed for me during that time that I was down there. I know my mom had me on the prayer chain, and um, I just want to thank you guys for that, because it's, God was doing a work. Um, the second thing is, is that unrepentant sin absolutely needs to be dealt with. It's not one of these things that we can kind of just cater along and hope that maybe God's just going to be a little soft towards that. We need to lay it before the Lord, come boldly to the throne of grace, ask for mercy and help in time of need. Another thing... I call these my stones of remembrance, is significant events that have happened in my life that, you know, whether it's part of my morning Bible study, but just sitting back and reflecting and just being like, man, the Lord worked here, he worked there, he's, you know, created this beautiful tapestry of a story, and um, for me, it, it creates a spirit of gratitude, just to look at situations and be like, man, God worked through that, even though in the moment, didn't, you know, it doesn't always feel like that. Um, we also need to give an abundance of grace and mercy because we have been given an abundance of grace and mercy by Jesus. Um, I know, I feel like the grace and mercy that the Lord's given me is more than a lifetime's worth. Lastly, I just want to reiterate that God often uses the most difficult times in our lives. Um, for our good and for his glory. Um, you know, I think when life's easy, it's, it's easy to think that we got it under control or, or that, you know, our own works are kind of getting us, getting us along. But, you know, during times of suffering, it's like we don't have control. And it's only the Lord that's doing the work. Um, so encourage anybody that's, uh, you know, struggling, um, you know, whether it, that's due to sin or whatever, lay it before the Lord um, because he's working in the midst of that. Lastly, I just wanted to um, 
Romans chapter 7, verse 24. This is written by Paul, who is really, I mean, one of the most influential writers in the Bible. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, I mean, talk about a guy who knew the Lord. I mean, literally on his way to Damascus had a, about as vivid of an experience as you can. And this is what he's writing. It's this, this wrestling with the flesh, but trusting the Lord on a daily basis. So I'm going to hand it back over to my brother. Appreciate you guys letting me share. told you. <laughs> and so I guess we'll close with a couple questions. And then I have a quote from Dallas Willard. Um, one, what do you need to remember that you've maybe forgotten or that's fallen in the back of your mind of God's rescuing work in your own heart and in your own life. Again, I, I'm the, um, and my brother has experienced this, my whole family's experienced this, I'm, I'm the recovering Pharisee that pointed the fingers at time and God has continually had to rescue me, not necessarily of, um, it's a different kind of rebellion that pride is, Right? And I look at that and I see God's faithful hand in humbling me and speaking and not just being like, oh gosh. What's God rescued you from? And again, if you're in Christ, he's rescued you from death. And maybe there's the grace that you have, the, the wonderful story, you know, that they talk about, oh, you know, I, I, I pray for my kids that they have a boring testimony that God would just protect them and they would see the strength and hand of God, you know, like how sweet of a testimony that is. And not all of us have that. Many of us don't. Many of us have experienced, you know, rebellion of various sorts of kind and God has rescued. But remember, it's Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Don't forget his benefits. So what do you need to remember today? And secondly, what do you need to bring before him personally or, or corporately? What is it that you're carrying in your heart? Maybe a personal struggle, addiction, fear, whatever, anxiety, depression, worry. What do you need to bring before Jesus today and entrust him with it? personally, and then within your family, things that seem lost, that all you can bring, and, and I don't think God requires anything more than us than bringing these things and going, oh, Lord, you know. Maybe that's a child, a sibling, a spouse, where you're just going, I've, I'm at my wit's end. I don't know how this is all going to work out. Oh, Lord, you know. And we're not promised any particular results, but we are promised the fact that, as Brian said, he hears us 
and he loves us, and he's at work in the mystery of it all. As my friend Anthony says, he, he bottles our tears, not one of them is lost or forsaken. And now I want to close with this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, Jesus' enduring relevance is based on his historically proven ability to speak to, heal, and empower the individual human condition. He, Jesus, matters because of what he brought and what he still brings to ordinary human beings living their ordinary lives and coping daily with their surroundings. He promises wholeness for their lives. He promises wholeness for your life. In sharing our weakness, he gives us strength and imparts through his companionship a life that has the quality of eternity. In sharing our weakness, he gives us strength and imparts through his companionship a life that has the quality of eternity. Let's pray. So Jesus, here we are this day, May 22nd, 2022, as people who are reminded of your works, both of old and of new, as we look back and see that you are faithful to warn your people you're faithful to deal justice and judgment on your people. And you're faithful to send your son who fulfills the temple, who brings about a people, who has gathered the nations, who brings salvation and new creation into our lives. A million times we thank you for Jesus. And we ask for your forgiveness for our amnesia and forgetfulness and ask today that you would renew and restore and remind us of your goodness and grace. And from that would come a hope for areas where we are waiting for you to work, but also a celebration of all the ways in which you have worked, that we have seen, and even more that we are oblivious of your protection and your provision. Thank you. And as we respond now, God, would you, by your word and through your story, encourage, strengthen, settle, and establish us? May we get another glimpse of your glory through the songs we're about to sing, through the prayers we will offer, through the communion that we will partake in, that we might reflect that back to you and to one another people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. It's in our Savior Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.